Our call to worship this morning is from the letter to the church in Ephesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things in earth. Our opening hymn of worship this morning is a new one to me, and I hope Paul's found us a tune that we know, but it's a really uh, good hymn, I think. Bless the Lord in psalm and chorus, and I invite you, if you're able, to stand with me as we sing.
in the light of events on Friday night and events around the world. It's not just in Paris and in France that atrocities are happening, but perhaps that has heightened our awareness. It seemed appropriate this morning in our prayers of approach to use the Litany of Reconciliation from Coventry Cathedral. Uh, That will appear on the screen, and for the people who are on the wings who might not be able to see the screen, I have printed off some copies of that, roughly one between two, I think. Um, And when we get to the end of that, we will then join together in the Lord's Prayer. And as usual, you'll be invited to say that in your own first language and the version that you are familiar with. And if you would find it helpful as we go through the litany, if you would like to say, Father, forgive, in your own first language rather than in English, please feel welcome to do that. But at the same time, don't feel obliged to do that. So we will approach God in prayer. It's a kind of confession prayer, but it's also, I think, a petition for a world in need. Let's pray with our eyes open. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The hatred which divides nation from nation, race from race, class from class. Father, forgive. (coughs) The covetous desires of people and nations to possess what is not their own. Father, forgive. The greed which exploits the work of human hands and lays waste to the earth. Father, forgive. Our envy of welfare and happiness of others. Father, forgive. Our indifference in the plight of the imprisoned, the homeless and the refugee. Father, forgive. The lust which dishonours the bodies of men, women and children. Father, forgive. The pride which leads us to trust in ourselves and not in God. Father, forgive. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever.
I wonder who finds it easy to, to know how to pray to God. Does anybody find it really easy to say their prayers? Does anybody find it really hard to know how to pray to God? Yeah? So we're all like this, aren't we? We don't like, quite like to admit it. Yes, I find it quite hard to know how to pray to God and what to pray to God and when to pray to God. But we trust that praying to God is important. That's why Jesus' friends asked him how to pray and he gave them the prayer that we know as the Lord's Prayer. And that's great, but we quite like to do our own prayers sometimes, don't we? So I've got something which I'm going to give to whoever's doing Sunday school today. Is it Elaine? I'll give them to Elaine to give to the children in Sunday school. But we will have a look at it first because it's just as important for the grown-ups as it is for anybody else. I wonder, does anybody still put their hands together like that when they say their prayers? Or like that? Or even look at their hands when they pray? Because when I was in primary school, it was like that. You had to put your hands together and close your eyes. And we used to sometimes even stick our thumbs out. I'm not quite sure what sticking your thumb out was supposed to do. And then you turned up to go like that. But a hand can be a useful way to help us to think about prayer because all of our fingers are different. So I'm going to put a picture up, which is the same one um, that I've given to Elaine. And I had to really dig for this. There's all sorts of very pious prayer hands out there. But this one, I think, is fairly practical because we can use our fingers to help us think about how we might pray. So we start with our thumb, and that's the one that's nearest to ourselves, nearest to our heart, it says on this work version I found on the internet. So that's a reminder to pray for the people who are nearest to us so we can pray for ourselves, our mums and dads, our grandparents, our aunties and uncles, maybe our next-door neighbours. The people we love. So we start with the people we love. What do we sometimes do with this finger in in this culture anyway? I know not every culture does it, but in uh, Western European culture, we sometimes point, don't we, with that finger? It's kind of the pointy finger, and it can be a bit aggressive. But the idea, perhaps, is that that one that points could remind us to pray for the people who try to point us in the right direction. We don't always succeed. Um, I quite like this one because it mentions ministers. But again, for our teachers and the people who help us to learn things, it might uh, be people who who, um, encourage us along the way. And then the third finger is usually the tallest finger. Has anybody not got that as their tallest finger? There are just some people that have their fingers that are different, so... They're never perfect, these things, are they? And this one is a reminder to pray for important people. So they say people in the church. So that would be the people, perhaps like the managers, who look after the day-to-day running and people who put out the chairs and the people who do the flowers and the teas and the Sunday school and the music and everything else. But also the people who run our country. Um, So the people who are on Glasgow City Council the people who are in the Scottish Parliament at Holyrood, the people who are in the Westminster government down the road, the people in the European Parliament. You could go on forever, in fact, couldn't you? But those kinds of people, people who make important decisions that affect all our lives. And then, a very important one for Katrina today, the ring finger. Um, the, wing fi- the ring finger is actually sometimes thought of as the weakest finger. Um, 
it doesn't have its own tendon. It shares one with that one. So um, there's a trick you can do where you sort of bend your middle finger down and put it on the table. And try as you might, you cannot lift that ring finger up. You can try it when you go home. Bend your middle finger back and you can get your thumbs and your first finger and your little finger. I'm not pretending. I cannot get that fourth finger to move. So this is a reminder to pray for people who perhaps can't do things for themselves. So people who are ill, people who are lonely, people perhaps who are affected by by war or whatever. So injured people, people in difficult places. And then the little finger, which is really a reminder to pray for the people that get forgotten. There might be people we really care about, but nobody else seems to remember them. So it's just to help us to remember to pray for people. Now, because I got this from the internet, it has a text and can really guilt trip us here because it says, evening and morning and noon, I will pray and cry aloud and he shall hear my voice. Now, I'm not saying you've got to pray in the morning and at lunchtime and at bedtime and I'm going to chase you up if you don't, so don't worry about that. But there's a really important end to that, that when we say our prayers, however short they are, however muddled up they are, which mine usually are, that God hears us. And that's the important thing. So using our fingers can maybe help us to think about who to pray for. But the important thing is that when we say our prayers, even if they're just one line, or if we draw our prayers, or if we dance our prayers, or sing our prayers, or paint our prayers, God notices that, and God really cares. And it, and it kind of pleases God, I think, that we care about others as well as ourselves. So we're going to sing as a prayer now a song um, about putting things into God's hands. It's quite an old one. Um, I think I learned it when I was in Sunday school. That's how old it is. Father, I place into your hands the things I cannot do.
There are four readings this morning, and the first is from Luke, in chapter 1, uh, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. The second reading is in Matthew chapter 17. The first eight verses. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. The third reading is in Mark, chapter 15, 15 through 20. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed over, handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him, and when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe 
and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. The final reading is in John chapter 20, the first two verses and then 11 through 16. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. And later in this chapter. Now Mary stood outside the tomb, crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. It might seem a strange thing in a Baptist church to be reflecting on something so overtly Roman Catholic as the mystery of the rosary. In fact, I've already had a couple of bits of teasing this morning about the fact that I'm doing it. And that's fine because we know and we love each other and we can have a bit of banter and it's good. And yet the events of the last few hours, few days 
have reminded us in a very acute way as people living in Western Europe how ignorance can lead to fear, fear can lead to hate, and hate can lead to death. Whereas knowledge has a potential to lead to understanding, understanding to acceptance, and acceptance to life. There have been a lot of things floating around on social media the last 48 hours, and it's interesting, I think, that the majority of them are actually attributed to Christians. And this one by Martin Luther King Jr., who's a Baptist, so I thought I'd claim that one, um, just seems to say something really important. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Apologies for the typos. I did that in a horrendous rush just before the service. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. I was going to do quite a long introduction to the rosary, but uh, it's one of those days when time is not on my side. Um, So if you want it, I'll tell you afterwards. But just to say the rosary goes back at least a thousand years to the 9th and 10th, even 11th centuries. And it's relatively late that the the devotion to Mary, the focus on stories about Mary, came into that. For over a thousand years, Christians had been using beads to help them pray before the devotion to Mary became part of it. But the idea of the rosary is that you reflect on mysteries. And mystery, of course, is one of those words that can mean all sorts of things. Um, can mean just something that confuses us that we don't understand, and some of us like mystery stories. But in this context, it's suggested, according to the book I looked at this week, that a mystery can refer to the plan and purpose of God or to the way the plan and purpose of God is revealed. I'm not sure I entirely understand either of those. I think it's more along the lines of Well, what does this particular focus tell us about God? And how does the story we focus on show us something about that? Or, in the words of one of the tutors at Spurgeon's Baptist College, what kind of God, and so what? If we keep that in mind as we look at these stories, these mysteries that the Roman Catholics and Orthodox Christians use to focus on as they pray, it might help us. What does it tell us about God? What kind of a God? And then so what? Hopefully you can all see a piece of paper which you can take away with you, which has got a picture of a Roman Catholic rosary on one side and a list of Bible readings that go with the mysteries on the other side. So you can take that away and use that for your educational purposes. But I'm going to focus for the time I do have on the four classes of mystery and what they might tell us about God and what any of that might mean for us. So we begin with the joyful mysteries. These are the stories that relate to the birth and childhood of Jesus. The mystery that, in the word of the fourth gospel, the word became flesh and dwelled among us. Now, they do very carefully avoid the horror of the slaughter of the innocents, or the time that the Holy Family spent as refugees in Egypt. 
But the joyful mysteries take us to a place of wonder. We meet a God who chooses to enter the realms of mortals, not in power and might, but in obscurity and vulnerability. A peasant girl named Mary betrothed to a man named Joseph, two ordinary, unremarkable people. An elderly widow and a man named Simeon, two unremarkable people who had dared to hold on to their faith despite everything life had shown them, and who glimpsed the incarnate Christ in a peasant child brought to the temple. A God who becomes a helpless baby born to unremarkable people in an unremarkable place. A God who takes risks. Because pregnancy and childbirth, even today, are fraught with danger. A God who chooses to take on the limitations of true humanity. A crying, dependent baby, who in those days would suckle from his mother or none. A toddler who had to learn to walk and to talk and to understand the rules of the household. A schoolboy who sat at the feet of learned, albeit fallible, teachers and dared to ask them questions. A pubescent boy whose voice broke and whose body matured. A God who is just like us. After all, that's what Emmanuel means, isn't it? God with us. A God who chooses to be revealed to unexpected people in unexpected places. To faithful elderly people who are powerless by dint of their status or their gender or both. And to young people just setting out into adulthood who are willing to risk everything for a dream. A God who rejects power and status, adulation and privilege. A God so ordinary that actually God is unnoticed. A God who really becomes one of us. An ordinary human being. A God like you. A God like me. A God we glimpse in each other and in those we name the other because each of us carries the image of that same God. And for me, that is a beautiful mystery. It's amazing and it's affirming because it's the mystery of a God who understands from the inside what it is like to be one of us what it's like to be me, what it's like to be you. A God who cares that much that God chose to become one of us. These are the joyful mysteries. A relatively recent addition to the rosary is the luminous mysteries. These were added by Pope John Paul II, and they particularly focus on the life and ministry of Jesus. 
It's interesting, I think, that both in Roman Catholicism and in Protestant Christianity, there can be so much focus on the passion of Christ that we miss out the life of Christ. And, and the rosary for centuries reinforced that. You had a, the birth of Christ and the childhood of Christ, and then you leapt to the passion of Christ, as if everything that went in between was by the by. But the luminous mysteries introduced by Pope John Paul II are aimed to enlighten, to give us insights into the nature of the God who comes to us in Christ. As Jesus reaches adulthood and begins his ministry of teaching, healing, and wonder-working, we begin to discover that he is, after all, not just an ordinary man, Though he is one like us, he is also different from us. He's not just a great teacher. He's not just a good man. He's not just a good wonder worker. There is something more going on here. The luminous mysteries shed light on the nature and character of the man Jesus and the work he does in his short ministry. We usually think it's around about three, three and a half years, his ministry. But actually, if you did an end-to-end chronology of the synoptics, you could get the whole thing into about 18 months. We don't actually know. We just know it was a short ministry. And the stories that were chosen by Pope John Paul II, which certainly linked to some Christian rituals, we see a baptism in there, we see a Eucharist in there, they show us a God who continues to identify fully with and cares about all humanity. So we have Jesus coming to John for baptism, just one more person in a crowd. We have Jesus attending a wedding, showing delight in human relationships and the commitment of two people to each other in marriage. And a Jesus who preaches and teaches the ethics of a new kingdom. A kingdom characterized by welfare, sorry, concern for the welfare of those on the margin, for those who are poor or disabled or unwell or foreign or otherwise disadvantaged by the status quo. A God who cares passionately for the welfare and flourishing of all humankind. But we also glimpse something more. This Jesus is more than a good man, more than a prophet or a wonder worker. He shows us something of the nature of God, a God who is intimately concerned with our earthly experience and yet somehow continues to transcend all of that. I think the story of the transfiguration, which was read for us, perhaps is the one that most illustrates this tension. We have a God simultaneously imminent, close at hand, and transcendent beyond us. A very real fleshy Jesus on a hilltop with his earthly fisherman friends, who is at the same time an equally real but somehow shimmering Jesus in conversation with the patriarchs of bygone times. It's not understandable, it's not comprehensible, and yet... Those who record the story see this as truth. This both and nature of Jesus Christ 
is one that theologians and scholars and believers have wrestled with for centuries. Overemphasis of the divinity of Christ has led the church at some times to treat with contempt any concern with things material or corporeal. All that mattered, it was said, was the salvation of the soul because everything else would be destroyed. And at the other extreme, an overemphasis on the humanity of Jesus has led the church to lose sight of that numinous, I like that word, kind of odd word, numinous, transcendent otherness. In a kind of soulless activism, there is a risk that we can be so busy doing good that we forget why we do the good. And I think this is a profound mystery. A God totally engaged in our experience and utterly beyond it. A God for whom time and place are meaningless constructs and yet who is revealed in a specific man, in a specific time, in a specific place. Gavin could probably give you more understanding of that because he talks about multiverses and things that I don't understand, but that kind of, it's that kind of beyondness, I think. The third category of mystery is the sorrowful mysteries. And these focus very much on the passion narrative. The way the rosary approaches Jesus' trial and execution is actually quite interesting. It breaks it into very small chunks. You can't just read through it quickly and get it over with, which I think is a temptation for me because it's so awful. It makes you stop and realize just what incredible suffering Jesus has. The aloneness and abandonment in the garden, when his human companions fall asleep and God seems to be silent, even absent. The rejection of betrayal and and denial by those he had loved. The humiliation and pain of the scourging. The scorn and mocking of the crowds as he is crowned with thorns. The exertion and exhaustion of carrying a cross through the streets and out of the city. This God who has chosen to experience fully human frailty and finitude does so now in its full horror. Rejection. Betrayal. Isolation, ridicule, injustice, torture. How can anybody contemplate these stories and not be moved? A God who suffers pain just as we do. And if that's a heresy, well, it's a heresy I gladly accept. A God who is called names, accused of lying, taunted, wounded, and ultimately executed. We have a God who in some way dies. A God who knows from the inside the reality of human pain, physical, emotional, and spiritual. A God who chooses to accept that pain without retaliation, accepts scorn, rejection, betrayal, and somehow absorbs all of that into the very heart of God's own being. A God who doesn't just know what these things are, 
a God who understands what they do to us. Because this is the God who chooses to live as one of us. A God who knows what injustice feels like because God has been spat upon, lied about and wrongly accused. A God who knows what it's like to be let down by those you thought you could trust, who you love and who you thought loved you. A God who knows fully the cost of bringing in a kingdom of peace in a world characterised by violence, greed and sin. Truly this is a mystery. A God who could smite their foes, could leap from the cross and trample their oppressors, chooses the way of weakness, vulnerability and pain, even death. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And, so we discover, for one's enemies. But this is not the end of the story. Death does not get the final word. And the glorious mysteries speak of hope beyond our experience or our imagining. Just as it seems that all hope is lost, that the man Jesus is dead and buried, we meet another ordinary woman in another ordinary place who weeps at the graveside of her dead friend. And we discover through her testimony that the impossible has happened. Death is defeated and Jesus lives. In these mysterious stories that move beyond the Gospels and on into the start of the early church, we're allowed to glimpse something beyond the limits of our own temporal experience. Jesus rises from death and ascends to heaven. We might not use that up-down language nowadays, but Jesus moves beyond death through into eternity. And God's Holy Spirit comes to those who have clung on to their faith through thick and thin and those who ran away and got it wrong and gives them renewed confidence, boldness and hope and enables them to carry on passing on the stories of the mysteries they've glimpsed even if they haven't understood them. And then the mysterious and mystical book of Revelation which hints at something beyond time beyond time and space and our world as we now understand them. We might not share the conviction of our Roman Catholic friends that some of this refers to the assumption and crowning of Mary. But surely we cannot fail to be moved by the vision of a renewed creation where death and pain and sorrow and sin are no more. In these final stories, we glimpse a God whose promises are trustworthy. A God beyond our wildest imaginings, or beyond my wildest imaginings anyway. A God who ultimately will renew all of creation and bring all hope to fulfilment. A God who never, ever, ever gives up. A God whose mercy, love and justice would outlast everything. But you have to have the so what question, don't you? What kind of God? And so what? How do we ground any of that? What does it mean for us today? 
Pastorally, we meet a God who knows firsthand what it is to be ordinary and unimportant as a human being from cradle to grave. A God who values those who are vulnerable, powerless and overlooked, including children and old people, as well as those on the margins. A God who knows what it's like to be rejected, abandoned, let down, hungry, tired and in pain. Such a God surely is one to whom we can open our own hearts, name our struggles, our feelings, our questions, and be confident that they won't be rejected. And perhaps it also reminds us to look out for the least, littlest, and loneliest amongst those we meet. And practically we meet a God who holds together in perfect creative tension things spiritual and physical, things temporal and eternal, things sacred and secular. A God who cares about the whole person, not content simply to supply material needs or to ensure fair treatment, though those are really important, but also to meet the inner hunger to make meaning and to nurture the soul. We have a God whose promises of the renewed creation should inform every part of life here and now as we too continue to try to hold together our faith and our deeds. You knew I had to get that in somewhere. Faith and deeds held together. That's the kind of so what I think that comes out of this. I'm told there are Protestant nonconformist Christians who in private pray the rosary and that's great. And it's also great if you think, well, do you know what? I never, ever want to do that. That's just too bizarre. Or anywhere in between. But maybe, just maybe, in the joyful, luminous, sorrowful, and glorious mysteries, we will find food for our thought and comfort for our souls. Amen. If not very often, we sing Graham Kendrick songs here. Uh, Paul and I have a bit of a long-term banter on that. But the one we're going to sing, I think, captures something of what we have shared this morning. Meekness and majesty, mannered and deity in perfect harmony, the man who is God. If you're able, please stand with me as we sing.
Let us pray. Gracious God, loving Heavenly Father, you must be heartbroken that a group of your earthly children could so scorn your gift of human life as to want to kill a hundred and more of us with no reason, no warning, no chance to escape their indiscriminate lust for blood in Paris, as others have done in other places in recent years. We need to confess that in different ways we too have at times willfully turned from what we know is your will and followed the devices and desires of our own hearts, often realizing all too soon that we have offended against your holy laws and done those things we ought not to have done and failed to do what we know you want us to do. So we must plead for your forgiveness before we presume to stand in judgment on others. Here and now we pray, forgive us our sins, Lord. And then the horror of what has happened in France floods back into our minds And perhaps we should pray, forgive them, merciful Lord. We find that very difficult, Lord, for we know the anguish these deeds have brought to hundreds of families and thousands of friends. And we have more to confess, Lord, For we have been too readily content to lead our affluent lives without showing sacrificial care for the needy, without actively combating racialism and many other forms of prejudice, without adequately supporting the work of those who do go overseas to work in the name and in the spirit of Jesus Christ, to relieve poverty to bring medicine and education and an understanding of Christian love, of justice and of peace. Forgive us, Lord, and help us to amend our ways. We pray earnestly for all the distraught families that have had news of the death of loved ones, and all who still await news that they fear may come. We pray for the people of France and for all who hold responsibility for public affairs in this crisis. And we pray that the leaders of all nations in the world may see the futility of current attempts to defeat terrorism and may wish to teach those principles of love and justice and peace that are the core of our faith. 
So now, Heavenly Father, we see all the evidence that was ever needed that only solidarity with our human brothers and sisters, only through that can we share in the building of a kingdom of love and peace, of justice and righteousness. May we be zealous in that cause and unrelenting in the effort to persuade others of that need so that in some distant day that none of us will see on earth the kingdoms of this world may become the kingdom of God. Lord, hear our prayer which we offer in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Generous God, as we dedicate these gifts of money to you, we also dedicate ourselves afresh. 
in this world that is so confusing and bewildering. There is such need for the good news of hope of the gospel. And so we pray that these gifts of money will be wisely spent by us in sharing that hope we have in this part of Glasgow and beyond to the ends of the earth. Amen. We close by singing a setting of Mary's hymn of praise. Tell out my soul the greatness of the Lord. God revealed to us in Jesus Christ and inspiring us with the Holy Spirit. Bless us with joy, insight, passion and hope, now and always. <laughs>